It's the end of our series, or at least this, the book of 1 Timothy. And as we do, we find in this last chapter a miscellaneous series of topics and warnings, not the least of which is the issue of money. Jesus makes the issue crystal clear. You cannot serve both God and mammon. We can only have one master. The writer of Ecclesiastes also puts it well in chapter 5. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Money, we believe biblically, is not evil in and of itself. Rather, it tempts the evil in men when it lures them down the pathway of destruction due to our deceitful hearts. The question for tonight is, how do we, living in such a prosperous age, handle money? Well, I believe the answer to that question reveals a lot about our ultimate commitments. I invite us all to hear God's word as we need his instructions to help us keep our priorities straight. 1 Timothy chapter 6. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better, because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And now down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Father, we thank you for such clear instruction And such an important topic regarding our financial wealth, our provision. Lord, we submit to you. We would ask that you would speak to our ears and to our hearts and help us to understand how we might honor you and glorify you with those things that you have entrusted to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do 
with $10 million. Say you won the lottery. Now, I know none of you would buy a lottery ticket, but what if an uncle bought you a lottery ticket and you were the lucky winner? Or perhaps the same rich uncle left you an inheritance of upwards around $10 million. Or say that you're a savvy investor and that you, you gained back a gain that paralleled the, young, the, the man in the parable of the talents who received back 10 for his initial one. Now, the discerning among us would recognize that of that $10 million, of course, the government's going to want its fair share, so we would be left with maybe $6 million of the original uh, wealth. And uh, then I know that uh, all of you good tithers would, would, of course, give a cool, you know, cold $1 million towards the church and the, uh, the building mortgage, uh, anonymously, of course. And um, beyond that... Think about that. What would you do with the remaining $5 million? Think about that for just a second. Okay, that's that's long enough. But uh, being honest with ourselves, would such a provision resolve or create more problems for you? I wrote in seminary, I wrote an ethics paper on gambling and was uh, surprised a bit to learn that a large majority of people who win the lottery eventually go bankrupt. They are not equipped to manage this amount of wealth. Their eyes grow bigger than their swelling bank accounts until they have creditors coming after them for more than they are actually worth. A similar thing happens to many professional athletes. And movie stars. Proverbs 13, 11 speaks to this issue of growing wealth quickly. It says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Money is a gift of God and must be handled responsibly. That's why God entrusted to so few. Yet still, in a capitalistic society, we find many somehow find, their, find themselves in this camp and can end up in great ruin. Money is not to be worshipped. It is a means, rather, to serve the living God. And our use of our money reveals a lot about our character, our spiritual maturity, and our priorities. Money can tempt us to trust in counterfeits, security, power, influence, and my own self-sufficiency. But scripture would teach us of a better love, a greater trust, which money cannot buy. Before we jump into our main topic, I do want to cover two of these miscellaneous matters from chapter 6. The issue of slavery, briefly, and also this matter of the false teachers. And as is consistent as in elsewhere in the New Testament, like Ephesians 6, Paul here acknowledges slavery as a given, as a part of that society. And he goes on to command slaves that they must respect their masters. Their failure to do so would be to dishonor God and undermine the authority structures that God has established and would discredit 
the Christian faith before non-believers as a religion of usurpation. Well, the problem apparently seems to be that Christian slaves, upon seeing, upon seeing that their masters have converted to Christianity, have taken on a posture of taking advantage of their owner's charity. And so Paul condemns this practice, admonishing slaves that rather than grow lazy or take advantage of their situation, they should serve all that much harder, like Joseph in the house of Potiphar, seeking to bring prosperity to their masters, especially to those who believe. And there are many of us, myself included, who contend that slavery violates human dignity. That's a violation of the image of God that God establishes in humanity, as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. And so we have to wonder, why is not slavery outright condemned in the New Testament? Well, I think the best answer to that question is that the New Testament authors recognized that slavery was deeply embedded into the fabrics of Greco-Roman society, and that to come out with a revolutionary condemnation of it would probably result in massive revolts and uh, chaos and misery, turning society upside down in very destructive ways. I would argue that slavery is quite similar to the issue of polygamy, in that in the Old Testament we see that it is regulated, and in the New Testament it is finally eliminated. We see something similar in the New Testament teaching that clearly seeks to undermine social classes and distinctions, establishing a level playing field, bringing down masters and raising up slaves to a level footing, worshiping and serving Christ at the foot of the cross. And so we would look back upon the Old Testament as regulating slavery to keep it humane. But in the New Testament, we see a marginalization to which slavery would ultimately become obsolete. And I believe that this principle still applies to us, even though we live in a society free of slavery, thankfully. There is a principle here that we as workers, employees, need to recognize that all the authority structures that we find ourselves under, we need to honor and respect. And we have a, a part of our Christian witness is to work hard and to genuinely seek the prosperity of those who God has placed over us, whether they are Christian or not. I'd also argue another principle we can draw from this is, is, is to raise awareness about the growing problem of global slavery, the sex trade, and other issues of child labor which have concentrated largely in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world where millions and millions of people are vulnerable to gross abuses that make things in the past look like child's play in comparison. We need to pray. We need to be aware. And we need to use what resources and opportunities we have to challenge these injustices during this season of, of, God, of history in which uh, these people are under our watch. 
And so we could say that uh, what Paul was driving home here in the early part of this chapter is that we, we have a greater love. A greater love not just for work or pleasure or compensation, but a love for our master, our God and king, to whom we give all honor and glory. And to this master, we must take up the cause of resisting false teaching. As Paul goes on in verses 3 through 5 to confront the love of controversy. Now, false teaching is a common theme throughout the pastoral letters. And Paul describes these men as those rejecting the clear apostolic doctrine, which is rooted in the teachings of Christ. These men are puffed up, conceited, empty-headed. They are arrogant and ignorant. They think they know a lot, but they know nothing. In their ill pleasure, they seek to stir up controversy. They love to quarrel. They are argumentative. They only listen to their own opinions. They're not happy unless they're fighting a battle in a contentious way. The chip on their shoulder always seems to be falling off. They have a bone to pick with anyone who would venture to disagree with them. They are masters of stirring up envy, creating strife. They breed slander, taking offense at anyone who would challenge their positions. And so they retaliate with character assassination. And so they generate evil suspicions, feeling threatened by the godly and assume the worst in other people, refusing to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's essentially how Paul describes false teachers who stir up infighting in his church. The result, verse 5, is an environment that is characterized by constant friction. And the root of this friction is is unhealthy behavior caused by a depraved mind and the deprivation of the truth. This uh, characterization to me has been illustrated in my recent reading of, uh, of the story of uh, the vendetta spirit characterized by the headhunters of Ecuador and their neighboring Aka tribes who became world famous in the 1950s uh, by martyring Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and others. If you're familiar with the story written by Elizabeth Elliott through the Gates of Splendor, a sad, sad account of a people so enmeshed in hatred, vendettas, and warfare, and and bloodletting. Of course, the only cure for the vicious Aka tribes is the same cure for infighting in the church. It's the gospel of peace. Only Christ's atoning sacrifice, God's peace offering, can end the war between God and man, and between man and man. Well, rather than pursue this gospel of peace, in the imagination of these false teachers, they are inflamed with this illusion that godliness is a means to material gain. Notice, interestingly, the King James Version of verse 5 has an additional phrase not found in uh, the NIV and other modern translations. And it's an admonition to Timothy to withdraw himself from the company of these lovers of money. And though that we believe this phrase is not in the original letter of Paul, 
is still wise counsel for a young pastor, for every Christian not to associate with those who are driven by the love of money and who live for money. So let's turn our attention now to this main topic in verses 6 through 8. I believe what we have here is the exposure of the reality of riches. First, riches disappear. Secondly, they dissatisfy. In verse 7, we're given a humble reminder of our birth and our temporality on earth. We brought nothing into this world and we will exit it with the same. Paul here seems to be echoing Job 1.21 and Ecclesiastes 5.15 that point out the nakedness of our bodies and our material wealth as we enter this world and as we leave it. You cannot take it with you, no matter how hard you try. The ancient Egyptians would bury their pharaohs with all of their gold, all of their wonders and their uh, treasures... And there all their stuff has laid dusty and useless for the afterlife for centuries. At least those things that weren't stolen by tomb raiders. Material wealth disappears like a vapor. Like Mr. Bigger Barnes from Luke chapter 12 who kept on building more storehouses for all of his excess grain. Thinking that he could just kick back and relax whose life was demanded of him that very night. So we face an end with nothing to show for our labors. If we have bought into the illusion that these things are something, when they are empty nothings, wealth disappears. Do not buy into it. We're given a stinging indictment in verse 8 against our materialistic and gluttonous age, characterized by the lack of contentment in the the uh, consuming and accumulation of material things. Paul also challenges the poor to be satisfied with the very basics of food and clothing. Now, there is no virtue in poverty, but neither is there any hope and contentment in the accumulation of stuff. The Beatles well said that you cannot buy love. You can't buy happiness. You can't buy friendship. You cannot buy anything that really lasts or that is really worth having. In contrast to worldly gain, Paul points us to the godly way in verse 6. True contentment, he says, is pursuing godliness in the service of the Lord. And those who pursue it know too well that we receive a joy that the world is ignorant of. A joy that is eternal and not temporal. And such sweet contentment comes to us in the promise of Scripture from Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We've considered the reality of riches. 
What about their dangers? The pursuit of money is littered with pitfalls and leads to apostasy. In verse 9, we have a warning to those people who want to get rich. Being rich soothes the ego. It raises our self-esteem and raises the estimate of others in their eyes. It gives us a sense of security, of power, control, influence. But as we have already observed, this is all just an illusion. In reality, desire to be rich brings temptation. It literally says that people fall into traps. And we know that the word for temptation can also be used for testing. We know biblically that God tests us. But Satan tempts us. And when wealth tempts us... It arouses within us foolish desires. It feeds our pride. Fuels our ambition. And leads us down the path of destruction. The text literally says that it plunges men into ruin. Like King Midas, whose grasping fingers only brought further pain and sorrow to his family. So it literally sinks our ship. Too many people have made a mess of their lives through the ill use of money. And sometimes that has eternal consequences. In verse 10 it says that those eager for money, many of those, have wandered from the faith. Their blind pursuit has caused them to, lost, to lose their way. Unable to find their way back to the road to the celestial city. Jesus lamented how hard it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. His riches blind him to his greatest need. But then there are others, apparently, whose pursuit has not made shipwreck of their faith, but has perhaps contributed to the apostasy of others, even their own loved ones. The end of verse 10 says that these folks have pierced themselves with many griefs. How many well-meaning Christian parents have only modeled the pursuit of the American dream and have left little example for their children of seeking after the kingdom of God? I've known too many cynical young people who've rejected the Christian faith because they don't see the reality of it in the lives of their own parents or people in the church. We have a choice what to do with our money. And it has a lasting impact that stretches into eternity. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. How the sower went about sowing his seed and some seed, it says, fell among thorns that grew up with the plants and choked them. Jesus later on explained that the thorns were a symbol of the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches. Friend, does your money give you peace or further worries? Is that new job opportunity a rose 
or a thorn? Are those friends leading you to fruitfulness or stunting your Christian growth? Let us be wise to the dangers of riches, especially in an age built upon a never-ending increasing federal deficit. The endless consumption of material goods, the overextension of credit. Christians must not be like the world, lest we ruin ourselves in forfeiting our faith, bankrupting our spiritual life, and causing the foreclosure of our eternal dwelling place due to the love of money. Now, clarification is needed as we enter into our final point. Verse 10 says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, first, it's not money itself. It's the love of money. Money is a gift of God. It's a means that can be used for good or ill, depending upon the condition of the heart of its possessor. Secondly, it is not the root of evil, it is a root of evil. There is no article before the word root in the Greek. And the scriptures confirm that there are plenty of other desires that also lie at the root of evil. And thirdly, it does not say all evil, but all kinds of evil. The the word evil is plural, and it has the article which strongly suggests it's saying many kinds of evil. And so we can take from this that it would be foolish and dogmatic to simply eliminate money under some utopian scheme. The problem is not with the stuff or money itself. The problem is the human heart that is so warped and so twisted as a result of our fall. And if that is the case... By the grace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can redeem wealth and use it both for the glory of God and the good of our fellow mankind. You see, unlike Marxism, the Bible does not condemn the rich simply for being rich. Now, the rich can be guilty of greed and gross injustices. And yet the Bible does give many examples of godly men of wealth, Abraham, Job, David, Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb was used for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul have to say to the wealthy? He commands them in verse 17 not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, but to trust in God. And I think most of us, when we hear these words towards the wealthy, we think of Bill Gates. Warren Buffett, other successful businessmen, professional entertainers and athletes. But I would argue that by biblical standards and by worldwide standards, just about everybody in this room would fit under Paul's category of rich. Of course, we can always think of plenty of other people who are better off than ourselves. But for every few people that are above us, socioeconomically, there are scores of people below us, worldwide and historically. We must admit that we have great privileges 
of wealth, opportunity, education. I mean, look at this building. We worship in a wonderful, glorious, beautiful house of worship. Praise be to God. But do not trust in riches. You have a good job and a comfortable retirement. Praise the Lord. But do not presume upon his grace. We are warned against the uncertainty of riches. And we believers know better. In this world filled with vanities, to put our trust in the stock market, in real estate, or America's booming economy. Should we invest our wealth? Yes. Should you be wise with your money? Absolutely. But dare you not put your ultimate trust in riches at the expense of trusting God as your ultimate provider and protector. Notice here in the verse it also speaks of God giving us these things for our enjoyment. We need not be guilty and overburdened, but rather we need to ask ourselves, are we really enjoying the things God has given us to his glory? Or are we so consumed with the fear of losing these things, so consumed with security that it robs our enjoyment of them? And if we find our wealthy little fingers grasping too much to the things that we have, let us consider this biblical cure. Verse verse 18 tells us to do good, to be generous in the likeness of our Heavenly Father. Ask yourself, what kind of riches do you really want? More stuff or a wealth of good deeds? Consider your end. Think about your funeral. What kind of testimonies do you want? I hope it's the testimony of a life well lived. Of doing good deeds. And being generous. Do you need a Christmas carol experience? To jolt up your Scrooge-like behavior? Or are you ready to submit to the power of of the gospel, to become an instrument of God's grace to spread his goodwill and his riches to others. Wise leadership always advises that we live with the end in mind. And so we must reject worldly goals of accumulating stuff for status, but rather build up our credit for the next life. Now, we believe that there are no amount of good deeds that would merit our admission into heaven. We are given the gift of eternal life solely on the basis of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. Nothing we do contributes to our access to heavenly glory. But there is a very real biblical sense in that the way we invest ourselves... The way we live our lives now does matter. It does impact the enjoyment that we will experience in glory. And so we are called upon to invest ourselves. 
in a way that live that impacts other people's lives for eternity. And so in a very real sense, right now does count forever. Friend, are you perhaps living the marginal Christian life? Content with fire insurance, as some people quip. Or are you making investments that will have everlasting impact? Are you prepared to counter the many vices and temptations that we find ourselves in a materialistic age and allow God to wrestle control away from you? To use that wealth for the building up of his church, for the spreading of mercy and justice, to extending the kingdom of God for the glory of Christ. And for all of us, are we prepared to tithe not just our money, but our time and our energy to the devotion and our devotion to the Lord and our service to other people? The young man was well known for his piety. He was regular in worship. He was the star pupil in catechism class. The other students envied his sharp mind, always receiving the praise of their teachers. But they coveted his riches even more. The young man's late father had left him quite wealthy. His life promised that of ease, without worries. And yet his conscience was unsettled. He lacked the assurance that he was truly right with God. And then one day the teacher came to town. And the young man saw an audience with him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus corrected him telling him that only God is good. But Jesus went on to list the latter six commandments, save only the last one, forbidding coveting. The young man was zealous to confirm that he had kept all of these commands since he was a little boy. But seeing through the man's proud, self-sufficient heart, Jesus looked at him, loved him, And said, you still lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The young man went away sad. This request was too hard. He could not let go. He was not able to overcome the barrier of the gospel that cut through his idol of wealth. Friends, we cannot have it both ways. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You must let Jesus take it. His disciples are called to renounce all worldly allegiances, to be willing to part with everything and anything that prevent us from following after him. Come to Jesus. Bring him your wealth and all of the fear and all of the control 
in all the issues of security and learn to trust him and ask him to guide you to be his steward, to manage the resources he has entrusted you in this life, to build well, to fight hard, and to live for the glory and the praise of your master and redeemer. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the king and the owner of all things. Your righteousness shines like the sun and it pierces us, burning off the dross and the impurities. Thank you for this strong word. Thank you for confronting us in our covetousness and our greed. May we come clean and trust you and follow you. May you shape us and remake us as vessels worthy of your honor and glory to live for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.